0: along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. For your next vacation spot, check out Texas for their vast landscape of culture, regions, destinations, and activities. Explore 350 miles of coastline and every kind of hiking trail from strenuous to wheelchair-accessible. Enjoy world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. Travel Texas even offers an online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Hello, hello, hello. So it is day five. And the last day of week one of our advent calendar and the last day of Space Week. So we started out in interstellar space with rocks flying between stars and breaking up in our atmosphere. We heard about the Tunguska event, one of the most mysterious impact sites of all time. The tale of of Miss Baker, first lady of space, one of the first animals ever launched up in a rocket who actually returned and became a celebrity. And also my conversation with author Mary Roach about, well, mainly about how you poop in space. But there was other good stuff in there, too. Today, on our last day of Space Week, what goes up must come down. Some of it, at least. We've been launching stuff into space for 70 years now, and lots of it has already crashed back to Earth. Just last year, we launched over 2,400 satellites. What do you do with all this stuff? you need to bring it back down to Earth? How do you land something the size of a car flying at 17,000 miles per hour, heated to 2,000 degrees? Today, we join producer Abby Perrault to visit the Spacecraft Cemetery, the place where space junk goes to die. And come back next week for week two of our Advent calendar, where we finally arrive on Earth. Mm-hmm. Hey, a quick reminder. We would love to hear from you about your best summer travel stories. Give us a call and tell us about the places you went, the people that you have met, the things that you learned while traveling. Uh, You can record a voice memo and email it to us at hello at com, or call us and leave a message at 315-992-7902. Looking forward to hearing from you.
1: The life of a spacecraft begins with a goodbye.
0: Shortly after midnight Moscow time, the big Soviet rocket lifted in orbit...
1: It catches just a glimpse of Earth before blasting into the sky. And then it's off, hauling scientific aspirations, political weight, and other bits and crumbs of humanity with it. Sometimes humans themselves. as a permanent manned space station, named Mir, the Russian word for peace. These spacecraft go places we could never go on our own. They survive conditions that would kill us immediately. But even they can't escape the earthly circle of life. After years in orbit, parts of them stop working, or maybe the humans below decide it's time for them to come back down. So. They make their final orbits, and then they return, ripping through the Earth's atmosphere, some plunging deep into the ocean, where they're granted eternal rest. I'm Abby Peralt, and this is Atlas Obscura, a daily celebration of the strange, incredible, and wondrous places in and a little bit above the world. Today, we'll visit the Deep Sea Spacecraft Cemetery. And beyond. Because we're talking about where space stuff goes after it dies. After this. Since the launch of Sputnik in 1957, humans have been sending all sorts of things into space. Stuff like the Sirius XM-8, a new satellite just launched by Stitcher's parent company, or cargo spacecraft bringing supplies to space stations, not to mention the more surprising stuff like Golden Records or Red Teslas.
2: There are an estimated 35,000 bits of stuff that are 10 centimetres right up to objects that are the size of double-decker buses, up to, of course, the International Space Station, which is said to be the size of an American football field or a five-bedroom house.
1: That's Dr. Alice Gorman, Associate Professor at Flinders University in South Australia and one of the world's leading space archaeologists. She studies all sorts of ways humans have engaged with space, including these tens of thousands of objects rocketing around in Earth orbit. And that's just stuff four inches and bigger. There's believed to be millions of objects, if you count anything smaller than that.
2: They're distributed from low Earth orbit, which is about 200 kilometers above the surface of the Earth, up to maybe about 1,000, 2,000 kilometers then you have a region that's just called middle or medium Earth orbit. And then you get into the high Earth orbits. And this includes the geostationary orbit, which is where most of our telecommunication satellites used to be. Think of these
1: orbits kind of like 3D lanes of a running track. With satellites and spacecraft as the runners zipping around and around in their respective lanes, but note that for this analogy to work, the track would be really, really big and the runners relatively teeny.
2: If we kind of could go out there and look at this, you might only see one object within your field of view. Mm. So that, that impression we have that this stuff is closely packed together and all jostling together, that's actually like an absolute worst case scenario, which we're not at yet.
1: Yet, there's growing concern about what will happen over the next few decades, as there are a lot of big plans to launch way more stuff into orbit. And here's the thing. The vast, vast majority of objects orbiting the planet is considered space junk.
2: Something that doesn't currently have a purpose and doesn't have a purpose in the foreseeable future.
1: Millions of tiny space debris like dust, a flecks of paint from a rocket, a rogue toothbrush, a glove lost by an astronaut on a spacewalk. There are even some entire antique rocket bodies and defunct retro satellites from as early as the late 50s.
2: Two experimental satellites called Dodecapol-1 and Dodecapol-2, sometimes called Porcupine 1 and 2, because they have <laughs> seven-foot antennas So they look like sea urchins, and they're not working anymore. They're technically space junk. I quite, I quite love them.
1: When satellites like Dodecapol 1 and 2 and many, many other spacecraft from decades ago were designed to go up, they weren't really designed to come down. And while it's cool they're up there, all of these obsolete satellites zipping around in Earth orbit can also be cause for concern. They might lead to space collisions.
2: First of all, they can cause expensive spacecraft to stop working. Second of all, every collision creates small bits of debris, whether those are dust grains or large chunks. This is why they sometimes call space junk zombie satellites, Mm. because they're just like, they're after the electronic brains of the working (laughs) satellites. But they can't be controlled. They're just like going, ah.
1: Uh, uh, uh. Today, luckily, there are a few different ways to care for the bodies of dead spacecraft. A lot of what lives in low Earth orbit, especially smaller satellites, are guided down through a kind of sudden cremation, deliberately dragged into the atmosphere where they almost immediately burn up. Those in geostationary on that outer lane of the track face a much quieter, colder end to their lives. They're sent into the graveyard orbit, over 36,000 kilometers, that's over 22,000 miles, above the Earth's surface.
2: There has been a convention that when a, a spacecraft gets to the end of its life enough fuel will be left in it to push it higher into the graveyard orbit so it'll be out of the way of the satellites that are working. At this height, nothing will ever get dragged back into the atmosphere. You know, we call it a graveyard orbit, but they're not dead under the earth. They're not buried. Mm. (laughs) They're Mm -hmm. extremely active. They're ghosts, really, aren't they? Ghosts don't stay still. Ghosts haunt so, so... In fact, you know, they're haunting orbits.
1: What about the remaining space things that don't wind up as space ghosts or engulfed in flames? The bigger stuff, like space stations and cargo craft, which can't fully burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. They return to where their journey began, here on Earth. This re-entry process is done really precisely. Spacecraft are guided down in a specific way to a specific place.
2: So as far as that controlled re-entry goes, that means you have to control its speed and hence its altitude such that it's over the right part of the ocean at the right time. Like, will come screaming into the atmosphere and heat up uh, both from sort of friction from the atmospheric molecules and compression, which raises the temperature. And at a certain point, it will start to fall. But like you can just imagine, there are head-hurting equations involved in making all of these calculations. And I'm glad that someone else is doing them and not me.
1: If these head-hurting equations have been done right, what remains of the spacecraft plunge into the Pacific, sinking over two miles deep, far enough down where no light can reach, hissing and creaking and settling into what is called the Space Cemetery, around a spot called Point Nemo, or the Oceanic Pole of Inaccessibility.
2: The idea is this region is so far from land and from inhabited areas that this absolutely minimizes the risk that uh, a human or human property would be hurt. And this region of the ocean is meant to be fairly sparsely occupied by marine life as well.
1: And it's probably important to note that this far out sea cemetery isn't some small town plot.
2: Well, it's actually quite a large area. So again, we probably kind of have an a, a unconscious visualization in our heads. Of sort of this little mountain of, hmm. of rockets that are all <laughs> piled up.
1: That is 100% how I saw it in my anthropomorphizing mind's eye, but this cemetery is far less crowded than human ones, with spacecraft pieces scattered across the ocean floor, hundreds of miles apart. Humans have been burying space stuff in the spacecraft cemetery since 1971, and since then, over 260 craft have landed here. Here lies a SpaceX rocket, one of the more recent burials, six Japanese HTV cargo craft, 140 Russian resupply craft, freighters returning to Earth-toting astronaut poop, the automated transfer vehicle named Jules Verne, which delivered two original 19th-century manuscripts, written by Jules Verne himself, to the ISS. And then the celebrity of the cemetery, the Russian space station Mir. That is the last view from Mir. Mir, of course, alone in the sky right now, nobody aboard and on its way to its death in the Pacific Ocean. In 2001, shortly after its 15th birthday, Mir descended from the sky breaking apart in a glow of blazing plasma.
2: Uh, A very goldenish, perhaps a little bit silvery um, fireballs, like a a sparkler being whipped through the air. The speed and…
1: Nier has been in the spacecraft cemetery for about 20 years now. And in the not-so-distant future, it will be joined by the International Space Station. When it's reached the end of its road, it too will drop from the sky, slip beneath the waves, and fall to its final resting place here in the oceanic pole of inaccessibility. Maybe you're thinking, we were just talking about concern around polluting space, but we're cool with
2: polluting the ocean?
1: And you'd have a point.
2: A lot of spacecraft fuels are quite toxic. Hydrazine is one of those. Hmm. Some fuels aren't toxic, but some of the, the kind of mixing elements, agents of those can be.
1: So there can be an impact, especially if there's residual fuel in the tank that leaks out when the spacecraft lands in the cemetery. Alice says scientists are recognising that. And there's been a push for alternative fuels or timing the deorbit so that the tank is empty by the time it enters the ocean. But despite all this, Alice sees the cemetery as a way to honor these beings that live and die invisibly, going from one extreme environment to the next.
2: You know, it's that, that old ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So we send these spacecraft out into these far regions where where it's so hard for us to survive so we send these these robots and these metal creatures out there to represent us in space and then eventually they come home they, they come home but we don't we don't see them and we don't kind of honor them for for mm. what they've done I don't know to me I guess there's is kind of quite an emotional sort of memorial aspect to finding the resting place of something as magnificent as the Mir space station.
1: Alice and one of her colleagues are talking about actually locating the parts of Mir scattered throughout the cemetery looking into mapping them, exploring what remains of them and what they've become. There's a chance these bodies of dead spacecraft might take on new life on the ocean floor.
2: So it's very common for for shipwrecks to become like teeming with life, like corals grow on them and fish go and live in various bits of them and all kinds of sea life kind of turn these formerly human habitats into their own so could we say that Mia has died when it's simply like been transformed into another level of existence where it becomes this habitat? And now I'm thinking of the, the Shakespeare uh, from The Tempest. Um, I, I'm just sorry, I'm just going to look this up because it's about transformation mm. um, in the same way, Shakespeare. But here it is, here it is, so it's from The Tempest. For fathom five thy father lies, of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Mm. So that's, that's kind of how I think of Mir and these other spacecraft at the bottom of the ocean.
1: Thank you so much to Dr. Alice Gorman for taking the time to talk. Mm -hmm. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. Our production team includes
0: Chris Naka Doug Baldinger
1: Camille Stanley Sarah
2: Wyman Manolo Morales Tracy Samuelson Camille Mojica Chinenya Onike Maddie Weinberg
0: John Delore Peter Clowney Dylan Therese
1: Our technical director is
0: Casey Holford
1: Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. This episode was mixed by
0: Luce Fleming
1: I'm Abby Peralt. Thanks for joining me.